Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Uh, this is Ed Fallon. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, thanks to all of our supporters, sponsors, partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, a quick shout out to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing the music we use to bring us in and out of these uh, conversations. Uh, my first guest today is Melinda Voss. I'd like to welcome her to the program. She's been a, she was a reporter at the Des Moines Register for 26 years where I first met her. Uh, she has since gone on to co-found the Association of Healthcare Journalists and served as the Public Relations Director for the Minnesota State Colleges and University System. Melinda, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ed. I'm delighted to be here. And you're with a, an organization called Braver Angels, and I don't—I had not heard of Braver Angels. Maybe much, much of our audience may not be familiar with it. Tell us about Braver Angels, just a, a brief synopsis. Okay. Well, Braver Angels is a national, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, and what we're doing is we are working to restore civil political discourse in this country. We all have probably noticed how hard it is to talk to some people who disagree with us politically. And so we are out to restore the conditions so that we can actually have conversations with families and friends, family members, friends, about difficult political issues that we all face. Now, dirty games in politics, there's nothing new to that. That's been going on forever. Uh, but it's gotten worse. I think, I think any, any objective observer will say it has gotten worse. And do, to what do we attribute the worsening climate of civility in politics? Well, I think it's a number of factors have come into play. And uh, one of the things that has spurred had, has made it very easy to people for people to say unkind things about the other side is social media, because a lot of times that social media is uh, anonymous, and so it's very easy to say something nasty about the other side when you are not sitting there face to face with them. Right. And so that's that's one thing I think. Uh, Politicians have found it easier these days to demonize the other side because they think that's what their constituents want to hear. You know, we, as human beings, we all like heroes and villains. And so it's very... Well, we, mo- we mostly like the heroes, right? We mostly like the... <laughs> no, actually, Ed, I would say we actually also like, like, we like to have villains in our lives. Uh, and so it's very easy to make the other side out. I guess, I guess as having the villain. A, having a villain makes you feel better about being the hero in your own exactly. mind. Exactly. Right? Okay, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. So thank you, uh, Vladimir Putin, for doing such a great job of being a villain, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, you know, it's the problem goes way back, though. I mean, I'm Father Coughlin, probably a name most people aren't familiar with, but since my my, my work is in radio, I'm familiar with the. The evils that Father Coughlin, an ordained Catholic priest, did to flame 
the uh, fan, to fan the flames of uh, hatred against uh, immigrants and certain other communists and other classes of people. And, uh, and even before uh, the online universe became such a chatterbox of misinformation and, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and hatred, Rush Limbaugh did a really good job at using you know, vitriolic language to fire up his base, to build a base. And so it goes back, you know, it, this goes back a ways. But yeah, it has gotten worse. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But how, I mean, how do we, how do we make it better? Well, how do we make it go away? Well, uh, as it happens, Braver Angels offers a lot of opportunities for people to, first of all, pick up some skills that they may not have picked up before in being able to have difficult conversations with families and family and friends, neighbors. And so those skills are mainly uh, listening and being able to speak articulately about your point of view. Uh, because there are a lot of people who I think would actually like to have conversations, but they're uncertain about exactly how to express their point of view. Um, or they have a difficult time, as we all do as human beings sometimes, listening to someone who has yeah. a different point of view. That's a challenge. It is, yeah. And, and, I, get, and I get it. This is, um, you know, we're right about uh, the time of Thanksgiving and Christmas as this program is, is airing. And, uh, you know, those are times that people both love and dread. And some of the dread is focused on, you know, expected disagreements with family members, a lot of times over politics. And, um, you know, so what's, what's your advice to people going into a family gathering where there might be some expected animosity? Should you just kind of avoid those hot topics, save them for another time, or bravely, that's the word again, bravely engage in them? I would say the first thing to do when you're with family or friends that you know disagree with you politically is to be willing to listen. Just be willing to listen to them. It makes a difference when people can actually say what there is on their minds. They can say it without being interrupted, without being challenged, and just listen. And again, I am not suggesting that this is necessarily easy, but I am suggesting that in the end, it can make a difference. Because if you are willing to listen and actually listen to someone else, then at some point, that person is probably gonna say, what do you think? Yeah. And then you may well have an opportunity to give your point of view. And of course, on this program, we, we try to do a lot of that. I mean, a couple of years ago, the first 13 programs of the year all focused on conversations I had with uh, Iowa Trump voters. And uh, they spanned a pretty broad universe. But, you know, from, I mean, and, and, and uh, vitriolic language is not unique to one particular side of the political spectrum. But, you know, some people on the left will, were criticizing me for, you know, why am I giving those people any airtime at all? And, uh, of course, what I hear oftentimes, well, if you voted for Trump, you're a racist. 
How do you respond to something like that? You voted, for, you, you voted a certain way, that means you are a racist. Well, I think one way that we uh, object to the other side is that we form stereotypes about the other side. And the problem with stereotypes is that they are uh, actually inauthentic. They're not, they're not an honest portrayal of a group of people. Because people are more complex than one, te- one, you know, one feature or another. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so the interesting thing to do here is to actually focus, when you're in a conversation with someone, to focus on them and what they say and to be curious. Like, well, how did you come to this point of view? What is it that mm-hmm. led you to think that? But again, back to, you know, some, somebody votes for Donald Trump. They seem to be a nice person. They, they don't seem to be racist at all. And there's no indication that that's, that's an element of how they operate or how they think, what they believe. And yet they're voting for a person who, you know, ostensibly you could pretty, like, you make a strong case that Donald, I mean, some of Donald Trump's policies have been very racist. And so does that make them complicit in enabling a racist to accomplish racist policies? And thus does that, Thus, does the charge against them as being racist, does it hold some water or is it, uh, is it misguided? Well, you know, I would say that's not, for me to, that's not for me to say. Each of us as individuals uh, needs to do the work, I would say, to come to a, our, our own conclusions about that. Mm-hmm. And I would say that there's not necessarily one conclusion. It's not cut and dried. It's not... Um, there's a lot of different shades of gray that mm-hmm. are often uh, not seen. And so uh, whatever it is that I think of uh, President Trump and his uh, conduct actually is not important to me right now. What I'm interested in is what do you think and why do you think that? Yeah, and, uh, and again, my, my experience, too, is it's, it's not just a one-way street. I mean, uh, I think of all the uh, times, and this is especially because of social media. Social media has given a platform to people who really aren't responsible enough, in my opinion, to manage a platform <laughs> some, in some cases, not all cases. In some cases, I think it's been a great alternative to media formats that tend to be controlled by larger corporations with other interests. So it's a mixed bag, but there are certainly people on the political left that uh, will cancel somebody they don't like in a heartbeat. They they don't want. I mean, I I, I was I can't even tell you how many times I've been quote canceled or shut down. You know, I, I had an opinion about uh, something involving violence in the BLM movement, and I was just told by one person after another on Facebook that I just have no voice here. I should just sit down and shut up. I have no opinion. You know. So I mean. It's not just left versus right. Sometimes it's within, you know, within any particular, you know, general general perspective on an issue. You've got people maligning each other, shouting Abs- down their ability to have a voice. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's why a lot of the work that we do with Braver Angels is to be able to communicate even with people who are seemingly on your side of uh, the political aisle, so to speak. Mm. 
because we do have differences, um, inter-party differences, yeah. indeed. So what, what kind of programs? I, I know you, I see you've got, uh, you, you bring groups together for conversations, maybe maybe meals, I'm not sure, uh, but you, you, try to, you try to have folks from both sides of uh, a, an issue, a you know, political perspective meet to discuss and find common ground? Yes, in our signature workshop is called the Red Blue Workshop. The first one was done in April of 2017 mm. in South Lebanon, Ohio. And this was an experiment. The people who created it, um, actually a University of Minnesota professor of family and marriage therapy, um, didn't know if it would work. They brought together half of the people were reds and half of the people were blues. And at the end of that weekend workshop, those people came out understanding each other. Some of them liked each other. Some of them went on to form strong friendships. And so that was then replicated in 13 other cities and Braver Angels took off. Hmm. Okay. So we offer free workshops. We offer film clubs. We offer book clubs. We offer um, local chapters where people can come together in an area and discuss local issues. All over the country? All over the country. Okay. And what, what kind of, I mean, we, I, I seriously, sincerely, I, since I know a lot about what happens inside politics, my guess is the partisans and, and um, kind of hardcore activists within both parties probably don't like this because they thrive on that division. They, they like to create that, that tension, that, uh, that, um, that perception that the other side is wrong, maybe even evil, or vermin, if you want to use one of Donald Trump's most recent put-downs. So my guess is the, the folks that are highly partisan probably don't like what you're doing. Well, uh, interestingly enough, I think <clears throat> for the most part, you may well be right. But we also can find that I think actually certain party leaders actually do approve and appreciate the work that we mm -hmm. do because it makes it harder for them a lot of times to have all this political rancor uh, within their own party or with the other party, because then the uh, pu public office holders, they, they feel like they have to speak to and uh, get their base um, fired up, and the way to do that is with vitriol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that often works. It does often work, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I've, seen, uh, I've seen really you know, good elected officials who really tried to do the right thing defeated because they had nasty you know nasty campaigns run against them that demonized them and and uh, there's often not even a grain of truth I mean and I, I, I say this uh, out of experience because when I remember Congress I was vilified I was the, I was the guy who supported sex offenders I mean which is insane when you think about it but you know you put together a slick brochure and you you know you, you make some charges and they stick you know I caught actually one of the brochures basically said I caused the Iraq war. It was my fault. I didn't know I had that much power. But uh, <laughs> so, I mean, some of this stuff is just so insane. It's up to, at some point, it's up to voters to say, okay, this doesn't seem right. This feels like a lie. This feels like misinformation. And, you know, that's a, that's a big challenge. It is a big challenge. It's, again, very easy in a political battle to distort. Uh, the truth. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's why this Braver Angels is a citizens movement. It's citizens who are coming together 
to talk to each other. We also do work with elected officials in helping them uh, reduce the rancor in their political mm. rhetoric. Good. But um, we are mainly interested in people coming yeah. together. So uh, we got to run to a break, but if people want to get more information about Braver Angels, where do they go? Very simple, braverangels.org. Okay, very good. Melinda Voss has been my guest the first uh, segment of this program. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Melinda. You're quite welcome. I was delighted to be here. We'll be back in a minute or two, folks, with some more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Hey, thanks to the Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese for partnering with us on this program. CPM focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, folks. I'm going to talk about books, about banning books. We're going to start with uh, books that deal with sex, and we're going to move into books that deal with climate. And then we're going to segue from that nicely into the COP28 Climate Summit. So, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, this, this story has so many angles, I don't even quite know where to come down on it. But in Missouri... In the town of St. Charles, Missouri, the, uh, this, there's a state board down, down, in, uh, down there that, um, no, sorry, a local board in this case, that uh, banned a book called Bang Like a Porn Star, colon, Sex Tips from the Pros. Uh, that was banned from the library. <laughs> but wait, there's more. It will be banned from the library after the 20 people who are on the waiting list to read it have had their chance to read it. I, I just, I don't, I, I don't know whether to stop. Just, I, I, I can't stop laughing about that. That's just crazy. I, I want to. I'd love to see the list of who these twenty people are. Anyway, um, I, I, you know, I wonder what the, I wonder what the tips are. I have no interest in the book. Just, just to make that perfectly clear. No interest in the book. But the, um, 
The head of the St. Charles City County, it's a city county library, he announced that the uh, committee's decision um, was firm and the book would be removed. And apparently, you have to wonder, why was it in the library in the first place? Well, it was, it was purchased five years ago because, quote, from the uh, story uh, in The Guardian, it was the only item readily available at the time about sexuality and sexual health for gay men. Wow. Okay, so that, that, uh, that uh, area of literature definitely needs to, to grow. I assume it has. <laughs> I mean, issues of sexuality and health for, for gay men, that's an important conversation. And if the only book you have about that is Bang Like a Porn Star, there's clearly a gap in what should be available. All right? So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> there's... Um, I want to move a little bit further south to Texas. So there's a there's a board there's a board in Texas called the Texas State Education. Sorry, the Texas State Board of Education. There we go. And um, they were asked to reject a bunch of textbooks because they dealt with climate change. And these are science books, science textbooks for eighth graders. And they included. And this is for the, you know, science textbooks did not used to include this. This is new. These textbooks included policy solutions for climate change. And that was, uh, that was one of two reasons why the Texas State Board of Education recommended that seven of these 12 textbooks be rejected. The other reason was they were produced by a company that has an ESG policy. That would be a policy that um, expresses concern about environmental, social, and governance issues. So, I mean, this is a far right-wing board, apparently. They, um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how they felt about how to bang like a porn star. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if that made it down into Texas, but uh, I can't imagine they'd like that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I, I'm kind of ambivalent about what happened in Missouri, but what's happening in Texas, that's crazy. You're rejecting a majority of science textbooks because they talk about climate change and propose solutions. Well, one of the board members, a Republican fellow named Pat Hardy, um, said that the uh, climate change isn't settled science. Okay, now the good news here is that the uh, board's recommendations on the 12 books, it's not a hard and fast requirement that all schools in Texas have to remove those books. It's just recommended. So it'll be interesting to see what school districts across the state do. But the fact that you've got a board that even thinks that over half the science, half the science textbooks should be re rejected because they deal with climate change. Okay, so that brings me to the next conversation I want to have with you here, folks. Um, very important stuff happening right now through December 12th in the United Arab Emirates. Um, this is the COP28 climate summit. And in the next segment, I'm going to share some thoughts from my, my uh, participation in, in advance of the COP21 climate summit a few years back. But um, so I, again, I, I review stories in a lot of places. Uh, CBS News, um, uh, the Waco Tribune Herald, what else? Um, Mother Jones. But looking at the story in The Guardian, um, you know, the guy who's presiding over the COP28 climate summit is an oil baron. You know, I, I think it's problematic enough having COP28 in a country that is a big oil producing. I mean, that's, that's their, they're a petrostate. 
UAE, United Arab Emirates, they are wealthy because of oil. And we're hosting a climate summit there. <laughs> and it's being hosted by Sultan Al-Jaber, who is the CEO of the state-run oil company. Uh, he's also the United Arab Emirates Climate Envoy, and he's also chair, and maybe this is good, a chair of a renewable energy company called Mazdar. I don't know what that stands for. But a lot of people are saying, okay, how can this possibly end well? How can this make, how can this possibly lead to anything but more stonewalling of what needs to happen to seriously address the climate crisis? So, um, Al Jaber, who has not been silent about, you know, the, he's been responding to the criticism at least. His argument is that it takes somebody from the oil universe, somebody who's got their feet in the fossil fuel world, to um, really uh, move forward on um, on getting action on on getting getting other big oil companies, fossil fuel companies, to come to the table and do something about climate change. I'm pretty skeptical. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, um, pretty. Uh, uns I, I doubt that's going to pan out, and we'll know pretty soon. Again, December twelfth is the closing day of uh, COP twenty eight, and usually things don't happen until right at the close. I mean, there's going to be a lot of haggling. There'll be late night meetings. If it, if if this one is uh, is like any other summits, we'll see what happens. But I am not, I'm not excited, folks. I'm, I hate to say that. So as the Guardian points out. The uh, climate emergency is very simple. Uh, most existing fossil fuel reserves must stay in the ground to prevent catastrophic, uh, catastrophic impacts across the globe. But the plans of the fossil fuel industry to find and exploit new fields remain huge. Time is desperately short with intensifying heat waves and floods already taking lives and impacting livelihoods. End of quote. Yeah, and... That's, you know, the Exxon Mobil knew what to do back in the 1970s. Their own scientists demonstrated without, without a beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing skeptical about science. Exxon Mobil knew what was going on. They knew that their business plan assured uh, dangerous global warming. And instead of saying, oh, hey, hey, folks, uh, we discovered something here. We really, uh, we got to kind of back away what, what, what we're doing. We'll have to change our, change our focus. Instead of doing that, they put out an ad campaign lying about the, lying about the impact of oil, gas, coal on, on, on climate change. And going about and just doubling down on doing, doing business as usual. They lied. They, this, is not, this is not my opinion, folks. This is also, just like climate change, this is a fact. It is factually demonstrated that ExxonMobil knew back in the 70s, and they lied about it. And so, you know, I, I don't have any confidence in the oil, gas, and coal industry to do anything but to continue to try to make money. Uh, this is what they're set up to do. The people in charge seem to have a uh, seem to have lost their moral compass uh, somewhere down a, a coal mine, um, and they're going to keep doing what they're going to do. And I don't see, I mean, you know, Mr. Mr. Jaber can kind of can try to convince us that he's going to do something unique and bring uh, bring the fossil fuel industry along with him to address the climate crisis. I, uh, 
I am beyond skeptical and beyond disappointed that um, the UN would think that the UAE was the appropriate venue to host the COP28 summit. So uh, back to the story in The Guardian, uh, Damian Carrington writes, uh, quote, I have been examining the UAE's climate record in the run-up to COP28. Frankly, the omens are not good. Again, they're, they're, they're continuing to build out. Uh, they are ignoring the problem of, uh, of natural gas flares happening up. They mean they, they do this, and then they don't report it. You know, I'll continue with the quote. Many have long dismissed the fossil fuel industry as a good-faith actor in the climate crisis. Christiana Figueres, who as a UN climate chief delivered the landmark Paris Agreement in 2015, was not one. She, um, she believed that they could, uh, they could, in good faith, be a part of the solution, until recently. She finally lost patience in July, having watched the oil and gas industry splurge their trillion-dollar profits on more exploration and huge shareholder dividends, rather than funding a switch to clean energy, end quote. Or, I might add, rather than funding the... Uh, the the uh, agreement to address um, the uh, impacts on nations that have done little to cause climate change but are being most severely impacted. You know, the, the loss and damage fund, that, uh, that, should have been, that, that should have been fully funded a long, long time ago, and it hasn't been. And there's no indication that these companies are going to do that. There's no indication that... Um, Nations like the UAE or the United States or China are going to take it that seriously. Uh, you know, it's just uh, I I hate to uh, I hate to sound so glum about this, folks, but I got to be honest with you. Um, this is not looking good. This is not looking good one bit. And um, you know, I, I again I we'll come back next week. Uh, we'll see the um, well the, the 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 summit may still be going on, but uh, we'll know pretty soon. Whether, uh, whether anything important got done. And I'd love to say that, oh, I was wrong this time. I was wrong. I should not have been so, uh, so um, you know, skeptical. I should not have been so, you know, uh, disbelieving that an oil baron could possibly lead a climate summit and come up with something good. I, I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to be able to say that. Uh, I don't see that happening. And yet the, um, the indicators everywhere are that climate change is getting worse and worse, um, just uh, 2023, hottest year in human history that we know of. Yeah. And, uh, you know, floods, droughts, uh, impacts all over the globe. And, you know, we tend to focus on the weather. Uh, the, the, you know, climate change obviously impacts the weather. But, you know, it's, it's continuing down that row of dominoes that really, uh, I think, provides even greater concern. Uh, food shortages, uh, water shortages, um, not just related to drought, but um, yeah, you know, it's it's just. I mean, we have we here in Central Iowa, we have an example of um, we have a lot of growth going on. We're a fast-growing area of the country, Des Moines is, and uh, it was just announced this past week that uh, another Microsoft plant was going to be moving in, and Microsoft is using eleven and a half million gallons of water a month. This is their sixth uh, facility. In the Des Moines area, we also saw an announcement that the uh, a suburb of Des Moines, Altoona, was going to um, tap into the aquifer and tap additional 
uh, additional large quantities of water from that. So, you know, it's not just about drought. It's also about continuing to grow, expand, and to increase our water consumption. And, you know, at, at some point, this has to be not just about we need to switch to renewable energy. The conversation has to be about we need to stop uh, embracing this economic growth model that says we can always just continue to expand, expansion. There's always, again, I come back to the mantra that, uh, that city planners and city managers and even city council members would say to me years ago when I was a lawmaker and leading the charge to address urban sprawl. They would say, if we don't grow, we die. And I say, you know, okay, so you're, 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 when you're 20 years old, you what? Maybe you hit 100 and maybe, maybe you hit 200 pounds. You're a big guy. You don't grow, you die. When you hit 40, you're what, 40 pounds? By the time you're 60, you're 600 pounds? No, I'm sorry. If you, don't, if, you don't, if you do grow, you die, is what we should be saying. And we need to apply that same organic metaphor to what's happening uh, in our economy. We can't continue to sprawl. We can't continue to use more and more resources. The, I mean, water is a limited resource. We don't make more of it. Uh, and and again, the, again, I've said drought is a problem, obviously. Yeah, but if you keep draining an aquifer, and if you keep adding to the to the uh, to the um, you know the number of people who are using the number of businesses, farms, uh, individuals who are using more and more water, it's a problem. So you know I I don't and this is a global issue. This is not just here in one you know this is not just a few point places around the world. This is a global problem, and the impacts in the U.S. are huge. And if we don't start paying attention, something's going to give. And so I really hope that um, I really hope that something does come of this. COP28 Climate Summit. Again, we thought some big stuff had happened out of Paris back in 2015. And again, big stuff did happen and then got ignored. I will talk, you know, I'm going to switch gears in the next segment, folks. I'm going to read, uh, read you something that I, it's kind of an indictment of, uh, of our transportation system, but in a comical way, if you can consider a discussion about roadkill comical. Hopefully you will. Uh, well, I'm also going to talk about my last day in Paris in 2015 before the start of the UN Climate Summit, which happened to be right about Thanksgiving Day. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org.
Hey, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Hey, thanks to our sponsors and partners, including Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westerman and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so in 2014, I walked across the country. I think um, anybody who's listened to this program regularly knows that. Uh, <laughs> it was the Great March for Climate Action. I wrote a book about it that was published in 2018. The book is called Marcher, Walker, Pilgrim. I want to share a chapter, a part of a chapter called Roadkill. Um, and no, I'm not just trying to gross you out. Um, it's, a, it's an important conversation for a couple reasons. And you can decide if I'm right on that after you, you hear what I have to say about it. And after that, I want to share with you my experience in Paris after the UN climate, uh, leading up to the UN Climate Summit in 2015 on Thanksgiving Day. Okay, so at the start of the chapter, I share a quote from Rick Reardon, uh, from the book Throne of Fire, quote, Despicable creatures, vultures, without a doubt the most disgusting birds ever. I suppose they served their purpose, but did they have to be so greasy and ugly? Couldn't we have cute fuzzy rabbits that cleaned up roadkill instead? All right, I enjoy that quote. <laughs> All right, so leaving Fort Garland, we ascend into the Sangre de Cristo Mountains following Highway 160. It's a busy road littered with roadkill, most notably elk. In less than 10 miles, I count eight of these huge, majestic beasts. We arrive at our campsite to find a ninth elk has collapsed and died right where we're supposed to pitch our tents. The putrid smell of rotting flesh is pervasive, and Sarah scrambles to find a new campsite farther up the road. You'll learn a lot about roadkill when you walk America's highways. There's often a local flavor to it, Today is Dead Elk Day. During two days in Arizona, the predominant victims were horny toads. On other days in the desert, lizards were the roadkill du jour. Later this month, in eastern Colorado, it will be box turtles. On a gravel road in Nebraska, I will pass three dead red-headed woodpeckers in a two-mile stretch. Weird. And in Iowa, we'll walk a back road slick with more flattened frogs than we can count. Mostly, though, roadkill is a smorgasbord rather than a featured special, astounding both in terms of variety and volume. It's impossible to say just how many dead animals we pass during 3,100 miles of walking. I conduct an unscientific survey on three occasions, and including smaller victims like lizards, frogs, dragonflies, butterflies, I figure I will have viewed over 20,000 corpses by the time we reach the White House. That's a lot of carnage to experience in eight months. At first, my reaction is disgust. But as the miles roll by and the body count mounts, my mind and gut can't process so much death. Disgust gives way to sadness and eventually to numbness, a similar trajectory to how Americans have adapted to mass shootings. At some point, the carnage becomes too overwhelming and you simply shut down. During the first months of the march, my response is to fling small and medium-sized victims off the road with my walking stick. 
The grassy ditch strikes me as a more respectful resting place for the dead and safer for animals who come to nourish themselves on the remains. My walking stick is strong and can hurl even a medium-sized raccoon off the road. As my competence at flingage, as I call it, increases, I barely miss a stride. On one occasion, Jeffrey and I come to a newly killed skunk. I dutifully send the the mangled creature flying into the ditch. That proves to be a mistake. My stick is now heavily tainted with the essence of skunk, and Jeffrey heads off on his own while I walk alone. Eventually, numbness sets in for me, too. I know I'm walking by a dead animal, but it ceases to shock me. I no longer care and pretend not to notice. Like sleeping, eating, and peeing, stepping over close to a hundred corpses each day simply becomes part of the routine. In Ohio, when I realize indifference is now my norm, I'm disturbed at this loss of empathy. I force myself to stop. Look at the victim. Examine it closely. Usually, the animal's fur is matted in blood. Here's a fox, tongue hanging out, entrails spilled onto the pavement. Here's a possum, still in one piece but with its jaw dislocated, mouth agape displaying worn teeth that have gnawed through many a meal in their day. Here's a woodchuck, intact, save for the pool of blood encircling its head like a halo, as if marking it for sainthood. Here's an unidentifiable mass of hair and skin that's been run over so many times, all I can say for sure is it was once a mammal. Viewing a recently killed deer, I marvel at the feeding frenzy as a thick, swirling cluster of maggots diligently works its way through the venison's prime cuts, as if choreographing a dance. Thousands of maggots dancing, crammed into a mosh pit of deer flesh, ecstatically eating and twirling their way around this carcass-turned ballroom in an orgy of survival and propagation. For maggots, America's highways are truly a blessing. In Pennsylvania, I shoot photos of some of these dead animals and half-seriously consider publishing a Climate March roadkill calendar. Maybe I'll personalize the victims, give them names and write obituaries, try to create empathy among my audience. Billy Raccoon, struck dead by a Hummer. Billy leaves behind a wife, 14 kids, and 22 grandkids. He will be greatly missed by his good friends at the dumpster club. Millie Monarch, rendered a hood ornament at 60 miles an hour. Too young, she had just tasted her first milkweed and was thrilled about her upcoming vacation to Mexico. Bucky Whitetail, crushed by a semi, preceded in death by his parents and two children. Bucky was skilled at avoiding hunters, but never fully grasped the risks of grazing along highways. Besides human and maggots, another creature that loves highways is the turkey vulture. This ghastly-looking bird is everywhere we walk, in every state, along nearly every highway and byway. Sometimes vultures circle over our heads, perhaps anticipating the possibility that a marcher will end up roadkill. Why do humans find them so ugly? Perhaps because of their function as much as their appearance, performing a job so unsavory it doesn't even exist in our lexicon. Given the estimated one million animals killed each day along America's four million miles of public roads, it's no surprise that turkey vulture populations have increased annually at a rate of 1.9% since 1990. 
Remarkably, between Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., I never see a single road-killed vulture. Many aspects of the life of a coast-to-coast marcher are unique. Among them, experiencing close-up so many dead and mangled animals. I examine, photograph, and describe in detail some of these creatures, not to be morbid, but to confront the reality that modern civilization exacts a high price on any life that strays into the path of its, quote, progress. We look away from roadkill because to pay attention not only compels us to confront the raw agony of death, but to examine our personal choices involving mobility, lifestyle, and so much of what underlies modern living. Various government and industry publications often remind us of the downside of cars and trucks, human fatalities, air pollution, carbon emissions, high insurance rates, urban sprawl. But rarely do we discuss the billions of non-human victims our car-centric culture destroys each year. It's easier simply to ignore roadkill, drive by it quickly, and let the vultures clean up the mess, even as we try to ignore them as well. All right, that's from uh, Marcher Walker Pilgrim, my book uh, about the my memoir from the Great March for Climate Action. And again, I, I imagine some might be offended by such a candid discussion of roadkill, but I think it's an important conversation. I do not apologize for it. So again, eight years ago, eight years ago last week, Thanksgiving, I was uh, in Paris. I had just walked 200 miles with Steve Martin from uh, Normandy Beach. I, I talked about that uh, recently on my program. And I want to share the uh, blog I wrote that day uh, leading up to, the, again, the conclusion of the march and also an interesting Thanksgiving dinner. I, I won't even say it was Parisian style, but maybe it was more Algerian style. Anyway, I wrote uh, back on November 26, 2015, I am shocked at how many people smoke in Paris. I see no active campaigns against smoking, although there is a campaign encouraging people not to throw their cigarette butts on the ground. The billboard announces that Parisians toss 350 tons of cigarette butts a year. I wonder how many municipal workers are thus insured full employment. And I wonder about the global carbon footprint of cigarette consumption. It is Thanksgiving, and the day is cool but sunny. I have an easy five-mile trek to central Paris, crossing the Seine River, where my end point today is L'Arc de Triomphe. My final day's walk will be from there to the UN Climate Summit's conference site in the northeast suburb of Le Bourget. I see on the streets of Paris all the preparations relevant to the summit, and it strikes me that this event is as important to Paris as the Olympics would be to any major city in the world. But unlike the Olympics, we should hardly expect 24-7 coverage on U.S. television, and perhaps very little coverage at all. I'm excited to see a windmill being erected in the middle of the Champs-Élysées. Behind that, two large solar arrays are being constructed. Paris seems on board for climate action. But can it be fully on board if the voices of the average person are silenced? On Sunday, I will finish the last six miles of this 200-plus-mile walk, despite the French government's decision to ban protests, marches, and other outdoor activities. In the wake of the November 13 terrorist attacks, caution and vigilance are essential. I get that. 
I support that. But squashing public participation is wrong and unjustified. It's really a question of priorities. The French government allows Christmas events to continue. The crowded markets I saw yesterday along the Champs-Élysées weren't canceled. Sporting events will go on. The actual summit continues as planned. What I hear some people in Paris saying is that this is an intentional effort to silence the grassroots and the voices of those most affected by climate change. And since President Obama has not raised any objections with President Hollande of France, I can only assume that the Obama administration supports the French government in this silencing of the public's voice in the climate debate. It will be interesting to see what happens on Sunday with the march that anticipated hundreds of thousands of people being canceled. I hear more and more rumblings that something will happen, that people will not be silent, even though many of the established grassroots organizations that were behind the march have meekly complied with the government's request. I am not sure I'll be able to walk to the summit to conclude my journey as planned. We'll see. I'll give it my best. My Thanksgiving dinner tonight is with five strangers. We are crammed together in a packed little restaurant, a place described to me as a, quote, couscous restaurant. I have vegetables, couscous, meat, and some wonderful conversation with four Parisians and an Algerian man. As I have come to expect, they all understand the urgency of climate change. But the Algerian man feels rather hopeless. I tell him I am cautiously optimistic that what comes out of the climate summit will give us all a much-needed dose of hope. That remains to be seen. For today, I am thankful that we have made it to Paris, that I have met so many wonderful people along the way, and for this delicious variation on the traditional Thanksgiving dinner. That's from my blog, uh, the blog I kept uh, on a daily basis when Steve Martin and I walked from Omaha Beach to Paris for the UN Climate Summit back in 2015. Uh, folks, uh, i got to take a short break here. When we come back, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join us for our December Garden Q&A. And yes, even though it's December, there's plenty to discuss. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Hey, we're back at it here, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. 
Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and a passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, so Kathy Burns is with me, and we are talking about, it's well, it's December, December. first week of December, it's our December Garden Q&A. We're going to talk about whatever you want to talk about. And yeah, questions. We had we had some uh, saw some questions on some of the social media forums uh, that concerned gardening and food production in general. So, cu- first couple of questions were about soil. So yeah, here's one. Even if it's I was just gonna say even if it's December, everybody's thinking about the next season. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one question got my compost delivered today. We don't use city compost because you really don't know what's in it. I had a bad herbicide carryover kill on my farm a few years ago. And in my opinion, I'd never grow food in city compost. Recommend going with a local person who can tell you what's in it. Uh, I agree with going with a local person. I wonder what what city they're in. uh, I didn't see. I didn't see what city they were in. You know, there's a compost giveaway thing here in Des Moines. And a lot of cities do have that. I will say that uh, even though I think it's always best to go with a local distributor and somebody who can tell you exactly how that that, uh, compost is made and what's in it, because it's free at a lot of cities, it might be what you can afford. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, we, we make our own compost. Mm-hmm. We know what's and in we it. Don't, and we don't have to go out and source materials. We mm-hmm. use we use weeds. Um, we don't have a lot of kitchen scraps. Let's go to the chickens, the view that we have. We do have some. We have, yeah. uh, we have leaves. This time of the year, we're, we're, we're kind of, uh, you know, stockpiling leaves for mm-hmm. compost production. Mm-hmm. There's of still course a few have, on the ground. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some, some, few, some mortal rake. But we have, and we have um, rabbit manure, the straw, the bedding from rabbits, the chickens. And, you know, I think if you make your own, again, it's more work, I suppose, mm-hmm. but it's the way, a way to get rid of all that product that you're going to have coming down into your property anyhow, if you, if you live, if you have a, you know, any kind of a yard. Yeah. One thing to try, if you want to save some money and go with some of the city soil or compost for some of your garden beds uh, use something you know what you would otherwise normally get in your other beds and just kind of compare and see how they do mm, that might be a yeah. good thing what else we got another question having to do with soil and you mentioned rabbit manure somebody's asking if it's possible to use too much rabbit manure on a garden space they say they have six rabbits and in the last two months they've collected about two gallon a two gallon bucket at least once a week and they've been dumping it on their 20 by 20 garden. It'll be tilled in in the spring. Um, I, no, it's a rabbit, rabbit manure is not hot. It's not hot. It can, go, it can go straight on the garden. I don't think it's possible to put too much on. I wonder, though, if it would if it would make it too rich, if it would make your that, foliage yeah. thrive, and then when it came time to fruit, you might not get the good fruit. Yeah, that's that's the risk, I guess, is you could have uh, too high of a nitrogen content, uh, content in the soil, but... Well, they should be ready then to maybe add some bone meal uh, after yeah. the plant is fully developed. Yeah, yeah, depending on depending on the plant. But I think the short answer is no, not a problem. Short, Let okay. those rabbits do their thing. Short answers are great. <laughs> so uh, somebody is asking. They're from Central Iowa. Uh, strawberry plant question, and they wonder if they should have cut them down at uh, the end of the season before covering it with straw and asking how people overwinter their strawberries. They do rec- they do mention that they're Ozark Beauties, that's the variety, and uh, they have two dozen 
plants in a raised bed. There's no need to prune strawberries. No, you don't back. want to do you, that. Yeah. That would that do would, not do that. They don't get big. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. If you already did it this year, never do it again. But covering them with straw, and it's interesting that the name strawberry has nothing to do with the fact that straw is a really good thing to cover them with. But it's a good little mental right, yeah. note. But you know, I mean, you. even the covering with the straw, you know. I mean, the, the city of Des Moines plants strawberries all mm. around City Hall, and they don't cover them with straw. We don't know the variety, though. No, varieties maybe. But they, you know, they they didn't do as well this past year as they did the first year. This is like their second year, I there think. There was severe drought this yeah, year. Yeah, I don't think they watered. But, and also, they, they never cover them. They seem to do okay. But I definitely recommend covering them. Well, if, if um, this person is using Ozark Beauties, that would indicate they may be... Um, they may not be cold hardy. I'm not sure. They may sure. be inclined so, to Arkansas and southern Missouri. Right. So yeah. I, I would check the variety. Fort Laramie is what we've had, and they came through the winter just great yeah. um, in, in the past year. So we got another question here. Um, by God's grace, I outwitted the squash vine borer. Ha, how do you know? Uh, by planting later in the season and by planting a lot of little butternut squash seeds. <laughs> For the first time in about 10 years, I finally have a harvest of winter squash. Well... Um, I find it interesting, and, and <laughs> we have struggled with vine borers. Uh, we have a couple of methods to try to thwart them ourselves. But the interesting part of this question to me was that they had planted a lot of seeds. So maybe yeah. they overwhelmed the vine borers, and some they just took out the plants that didn't make it and had enough that made it. Yeah, so, I've, I've heard other people use that strategy with zucchini. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, we, and we have done that. We, we often plant uh, after July 4th to try mm -hmm. to outsmart the vine borer, but... You know, then you run into other challenges, uh, pollination. I mean, we've, we had, I'm almost embarrassed to say we've had a total of zero zucchini this year. Oops. Lots of male That's flowers. That's embarrassing. And very few female flowers. And again, I wonder, wonder maybe our soil was too rich there. Well, we're going to check into that yeah, for yeah, next year. I'm not year. sure. But um, we do make heavy use of diatomaceous earth on the stem of that, or the base of that stem, of anything that might be infected by... Well, you wrap it with tinfoil first. I, I do and when that, they're that, very young. That sounds yeah. tedious, but it's not too bad, right? It's not bad. You don't yeah. have to really take it off. It just sits there. You dig down around the, Couple uh, the stem a little... Yeah. No, no, about a half inch. Half That's, an inch. So you, otherwise you're going to really oh, mess sure. with, the, yeah, yeah. with okay. the plant. You wrap a little piece of tinfoil around it and bring it up a couple inches above the soil. And just leave them on there. But also that diatomaceous earth really seems to, to get the best of them. All right. So somebody says, y'all, I'm already missing my garden. I'm over here already planning my garden for next year. I am thinking of going with cherry tomatoes, squash, and peppers to start. What are some other easy harvests, or har easier harvests to plant? And is May a good time to begin? Uh, this person has a problem. Begin right now. A good problem. <laughs> uh, also, you know, of course, we don't we don't really miss the garden because we're busy with it all year round. Yeah. And plant now, plant now, and check your growing charts. Yeah. Uh, on Seed Savers has a good chart. Yeah. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining me today. Mm -hmm. Thanks to our guest today, Melinda Voss, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe. Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks also to the Des Moines Irish Session for our music. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.